ESPN Radio. Chris Canty, Shay Cornette here with you on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app series, XM Channel 80. Hope everyone's having a good Wednesday. A lot of things to get to uh, on the show. We already talked about this a little bit, uh, Canty, but we got to revisit it here because it's important. And it's something that now feels like a pattern to me in the NFL. And we need to discuss what is going on. So the Dallas Cowboys paid a confidential settlement of $2.4 million after four members of the cheerleading squad, the Dallas Cowboys cheerleaders, accused a senior team executive of voyeurism in the locker room as they were undressing during a 2015 event at AT&T Stadium. The team executive that was accused is Richard uh, Dalrymple, the Cowboys' longtime senior vice president for public relations and communications. Each woman received right around $400,000 after the incident. One of the cheerleaders alleged that she clearly saw Dalrymple standing behind a partial wall in their locker room with his iPhone extended toward them while they were changing their clothes. This is according to several people with knowledge of the events. And letters later sent by attorneys for the cheerleaders to the team. Dalrymple gained entry to the back door of the cheerleaders' locked dressing room by using one of those security key cards. Dalrymple also was accused by a lifelong Cowboys fan of taking an upskirt photo of Charlotte Jones Anderson, who we now know is Jerry Jones' daughter, and also a team senior vice president. Um, in the Cowboys' war room. That was during the 2015 NFL draft. So the fan, after he accused this of happening, signed an affidavit that he was watching a live stream of the war of the war room on the team's website when he said he saw the alleged incident. So a lot of things now um, being accused of Dalrymple. And to me, I mean, it's just such an unfortunate situation. And I know we kind of got into the nuts and bolts of it Canty last hour, but in terms of macro and how the NFL handles this going forward, are they even capable of handling this properly? Like I laid out in the last hour, all the things we've seen now in the last month, whether it's Stephen Jones, you know, trying to figure out a way to incentivize losing or Dan Snyder being accused of sexual harassment and workplace misconduct and not having all those findings coming out just yet. And now this situation with the Dallas Cowboys and the Dallas Cowboys cheerleaders, which by the way are iconic, and a team and a squad that many in the dance community and cheer community look to as pillars of what they do. Is the NFL even capable of handling this in the right way? Absolutely not. And Shay, I'm a firm believer that the best indicator for future behavior is past behavior. And we've seen with the NFL at the club level and at the league level when it comes to allegations or accusations of this nature, they have not done a great job of being able to handle it. And beyond that, they haven't put the disciplinary measures in place in order to curb those future behaviors from team executives or from NFL owners. Now, we did have the incident with Jerry Richardson, the owner of the Carolina Panthers, where several employees complained of workplace misconduct and he was forced to sell the team. But if the punishment is being able to profit and, and sell your team for $2.2 billion, then I, I don't know that, that that's a measure that's going to deter a lot of other owners from engaging in such behaviors. And then looking at what happened with Dan Snyder and how he handled the workplace misconduct accusations for former employees toward the cheerleaders from the Washington football team or the Washington commanders, and then the accusation of another Washington commanders employee that he actually was the one that did the harassing himself. Um, This is just one of those situations where I can't have any confidence that the NFL is going to handle it the right way based on the past incidents. And Shay, this is not something that 
that catches me by surprise. This is not something that shocks me. But at the same time, every time one of these incidents comes up, I'm embarrassed that I was associated with the league that doesn't take these allegations as seriously as they should. I played for the Dallas Cowboys. I know Rich Dalrymple. He's the right-hand man of Jerry Jones. Anytime you saw Jerry Jones, you saw Jerry Jones' bodyguard, Rosie, and you saw Rich Dalrymple. That's just how it was. And so for Rich to engage in these types of behaviors based on where his station is within the organization, it's something that's unbecoming. Not to say that this is behavior that's acceptable for anybody that's associated with the organization, but with somebody that high up, you're responsible for upholding a certain standard. And that is below the standard that we were told as players was with the Dallas Cowboys and how we were supposed to represent that organization. So it is a black eye on the Dallas Cowboys. It's a black stain from the NFL because they have shown at every turn that they don't know how to handle situations like this when it comes to the ins and outs of the investigations and best practices. But they have also haven't shown that they're interested in engaging in any kind of substantive change when it comes to putting policies in place to better protect women in the workplace environment. And that's the sad part about it. The behaviors that we saw from the commanders, that happened over the course of a decade. The stuff that we're talking about with the Dallas Cowboys, 2015 was when this incident took place, and they allowed Rich Dalrymple to stay in his role for over six years. That's an embarrassment. Something about it has to change, and until the NFL shows any real urgency about it, it's going to continue to be one of those things that we talk about. Until they insist on transparency when it comes to these investigations and disciplinary measures that actually have real teeth, then we're going to continue to be, then women in the NFL are going to be continued to be subjected to these types of behaviors. The cronyism has led to misogynistic attitudes being pervasive throughout the league. If you don't believe me, all you got to do is look at the emails that were leaked about John Gruden and, and his correspondence to Bruce Allen, who was at the time an executive for the Washington Commanders. All you got to do is see it. It's spelled out for you in black and white. And in this instance, the Dallas Cowboys actually have surveillance footage. I still don't understand what the hell Rich Dalrymple was doing in the Dallas Cowboys cheerleaders locker room. It, it is completely unexcusable, the fact that he was there, that he engaged in that kind of behavior, and then that Jerry Jones and the Dallas Cowboys organization let him stay on staff until the end of this season. Well, you said it yourself. It's his right-hand man. It's his buddy. They got to figure out a way. I mean, according to the Dallas Cowboys, he had no wrongdoings. They went through his phone. There was nothing there. And speaking of, we had a chance to talk to Don Van Natta, the ESPN senior writer who wrote this article, and it was released earlier today. And here's what he said about the Cowboys being transparent about the Dalrymple investigation. Take a listen. They have uh, a lot of data. They have this, the security key card that Dalrymple used. There's a timestamp on the precise moment that he entered that locker room. And then they have video cameras, surveillance cameras, as you point out, in the hallway. They're also timestamped. So Dalrymple claims he got into that dressing room. As soon as he found that there were women in there, he left immediately. Uh, the cheerleader that made the accusation that found him said it was several minutes after they heard a door open and shut. Uh, when they actually saw Dalrymple. So the difference between a few seconds, which Dalrymple says he was in there, and several minutes that the cheerleader said he was in there can be determined with that data that the Cowboys had had come up with in their investigation, and they refused to turn it over to us. So to your point, it's a very good one about transparency. There was not complete transparency 
with us uh, in the findings um, that they had in this very thorough investigation that they say that they conducted. They didn't turn over that data to us. And it's so disappointing, Canty, because when you look at how these uh, events went down, these cheerleaders saw the incident, were obviously disgusted, scared, confused why it was even happening, went directly to HR with this information. They signed non-disclosure so their names can't be released, but yet want the man to be fired because obviously he made them feel extremely uncomfortable and were, viol- and were violating their personal space and going through back doors and doing things that would make anyone, male or female, feel uncomfortable and violated and like they were being constantly watched and filmed. And so all they wanted was for this guy to be released, let go. Instead, he stayed on staff for six years. And while, yes, they were compensated for this to basically go away, that's not what they wanted. Do you think I, I would assume this is not the outcome that they would have wanted? They would have wanted it, A, never to happen, and then for the man to be fired so it could never happen again. No doubt about it. And, Shay, I, I think it's important to acknowledge that the settlement has no bearing on the organization pursuing the prosecution of an individual that engages in that type of behavior. Because when you look at the laws in, in that area, in that city, in Arlington, it clearly says that it's a felony to videotape somebody's inter, in, intimate areas without their consent, to photograph their intimate areas without their consent. And based on the allegations that are spelled out, in the affidavits that these women signed with their attorneys, that's exactly what Rich Dalrymple was doing. So the Cowboys settling with the cheerleaders should not stop their pursuit of justice on their behalf when it comes to any kind of criminal behavior that Rich Dalrymple engaged in. And that's the part to me where the Cowboys are culpable in fostering an environment that would Mm -hmm. make women feel uncomfortable, that would make women feel unsafe. We want you listeners to tap in on the Candy Call-In line on this conversation. 888-SAY-ESPN, that's 888-729-3776. Can the NFL handle issues when it comes to women in the workplace? Things like we've seen, such like the Dallas Cowboys and the Washington Commanders. We want to hear from you. But coming up next... Todd McShay's newest 2022 NFL Mock Draft 2.0 dropped today. So which quarterback has the best shot of moving up the draft boards and into the top 10? Shay and I will have the answer for you. This is ESPN Radio. Back after this. ESPN Radio. Rolling right along on ESPN Radio, the ESPN App Series XM Channel 80. Chris Canty, Shay Cornette. Here with you. You can join the conversation with us on the Candy Call Online. Give us a call, 1-88-SAY-ESPN, 888-729-3776. The question at this point now, as we turn our attention to something that is coming up quicker, sooner rather than later, and that would be the NFL draft. We've turned the page now on the Super Bowl, and we're going to look ahead now to next season and what some of these teams are going to look like if they perhaps add a quarterback. So Tom McShay's draft 2.0 came out today. And there's some key takeaways here, but here's the thing that stood out to me the most in terms of of this draft class and then the 2.0 mock draft candy. So uh, quarterbacks on the board here, he's got Kenny Pickett going 11th to the Commanders, Malik Willis going 17th to the Steelers, who would trade up with the Chargers ultimately to take Willis because obviously they don't need a quarterback, Matt Corral going 18th to the Saints, and then Sam Howell going 32nd to the Lions. Man, Canty, for what everyone pegged as this year being a down quarterback year with you know not a lot of depth at the position, four dudes in the first round doesn't sound too bad. No, it doesn't, but I think it it, rec- it shows you the level of urgency that teams have in order to find a guy that can be a force multiplier at the quarterback position because in today's NFL, if you don't have a guy that can play above the X's and O's, 
your team doesn't really have a chance to compete and contend at a championship level. And so I think that's that's you know reflective in this mock draft, these quarterbacks being able to move up the way that they had. I mean, coming into this season, Todd McShay and Mel Kuyper both said that they had a hard time putting a first-round grade on any of these quarterbacks that were going to potentially be coming out. And so now we're seeing as many as four being projected in the first round. I think that just speaks to the level of urgency, quite frankly, the desperation that some of these franchises have with trying to find a quarterback. Because, Shay, if we're being honest, head coaches in the National Football League don't get a long runway. You're talking about getting three years to turn it around, and if it doesn't happen, then you're probably going to be on the outs. If you look at the New York Giants, that's a franchise that's hired and fired three coaches in a matter of six years. So those coaches only got two years to try to get things fixed. So it just shows you that teams are desperate to get their hands on one of those guys, one of those signal callers that can take advantage of the opportunities that offenses have based on how the rules are set in today's game. So I'm with you. Of the batch that are projected to go in the first round, I really like Malik Willis out of Liberty. I thought he did some good things down at the Senior Bowl and heard nothing but rave reviews at the practices that they had down there, especially that one practice, Shay, where it was raining and the wind was blowing a little bit, and they said the arm talent jumped out in comparison to the other quarterbacks because of how he could drive the ball downfield. The attributes that he has, the movement skills, those are all things that play well in today's game, but we also have to recognize that Malik Willis is not a finished product, which is why I think the Pittsburgh Steelers would be the perfect organization for him to go to. It's, I think a lot of these guys were helped, too, by the Senior Bowl. Obviously, um, you know, pro days and, and the combine and the things of those natures. But coming out of the Senior Bowl, my husband covered the Senior Bowl down there in, in um, Mobile, Alabama. And, like, for example, Sam Howell here going 32nd to the Lions. Like, this is a guy that was kind of a product of the system that he was running, you know. And so when they kind of get these dudes one-on-one and you can see their skill set without a coach's scheme or system breathing down their neck and see what their total skill set is and what the package is and knowing, as you just said, Canty, that they're not a finished product, it can only help themselves. And I feel like, as we said, we talked about how this wasn't a, a quote-unquote deep and, and good draft class, but now perhaps some of these dudes help themselves at, at, at things like the Senior Bowl showcase that they really can get this done. Like Kenny Pickett now – I mean, he's always been that that consensus number one quarterback because he's had the most experience, right? He's I believe he's had thirty starts or played in thirty games, fifty games, something along those late mm-hmm. that that time frame um, in college, and so he just has the most experience under his belt. So that's the obvious first choice in terms of drafting a quarterback. But and Malik Malik Willis playing at Liberty, they had a great season, but he played at Liberty, so it's just trying to get him acclimated. And when you're amongst the big the big dogs, right, at things like the Senior Bowl and the Combine, it's the ability to showcase. And these guys only help themselves, it seems like, since the season ended. And so it'll be interesting to see how these mock drafts change, because you know how this goes, Canty, better than anyone. These things change at a moment's notice, and it depends on how guys work out and and hand size and all these other things and it'll change drastically once we get to the draft but for a 2.0 man four quarterbacks in the first round that could immediately help teams is pretty interesting to me no doubt about it and we know that the quarterbacks will continue to get pushed up based on how they perform once they go through the pre-draft process with their throwing sessions but then also what we see at the combine let's go out to the call-in line let's go to roger in reno roger you're on espn radio with Shay Cornette and chris canny what you got I just wanted to say I completely agree with you about the situation in Dallas with culture and accountability. At this point, it really is just obvious that they're not taking anything serious. All they're doing is just trying to diminish 
what had happened and not trying to hold anyone accountable for future change. Yeah, I mean, Roger, you're absolutely right. And Shay and I echo those same sentiments. The NFL is not serious about substantive change when it comes to the culture in these workplace environments pertaining to women and also when it comes to diversity in the executive levels or the upper reaches of the franchise. And so I think that's something that has to change, but the NFL has shown that it's not going to take it seriously, Shay, and that's got to be a source of frustration for a lot of people that are big fans of this game, recognizing that people that look like you are being marginalized when it comes to their treatment by their employers. Look, there's a way to shut things down and a way to fix things with authority and a way to say this isn't going to be tolerated anymore. Like we've all experienced people like that, organizations like that, workplaces like that, and the NFL needs to adopt that mentality and they need to do it quickly because quite frankly that time is up. It needs to be up sooner rather than later. These stories can't keep coming out because it's just more things being tolerated after too long of a period of time. Like Dal Ripple just retired, what was it, a month ago? Mm-hmm. A month no, two, ago? No, two weeks ago. Oh, two sorry. weeks ago, I'm February sorry. 2nd. Two weeks ago. Like, this was this had been floating around that building for five, six years, and he just retired, probably knowing the story was going to come out, two weeks ago. Like, we're living in 2022. These kinds of things can no longer be tolerated, and someone needs to step forward and, and make a stand, whether that's Roger Goodell, the owners, whoever it is, but they need to come together and be in cahoots in terms of making something sound like it's for real and it's it's not going to be tolerated anymore because up until this point that has not been said about anything that would be looked on by society as being not great. We'll just put it that way. Yeah, completely agree with you, Shay. And there's certainly going to be a lot more to this story. But for a league that prides itself on being inclusive and being diverse, they sure don't do a great job no. of treating their employees with the respect that they deserve no, when they do you. hire them in those roles. But coming up next, more than two months after the MLB lockout began, It seems like very little progress has been made toward a new collective bargaining agreement. So when is it time to worry about the start of the 2022 MLB regular season? We'll have the answer for you. But first, a word from Indeed. Finding talent can leave you feeling like you need some hidden talent to get it all done. Don't fret. That's why there's Indeed. Just sponsor a job and they'll search through millions of resumes on their site to show you candidates that fit your job description. When you find a candidate you'd like to speak with, Indeed's all-in hiring platform helps you schedule virtual interviews and connect with applicants right from your employer dashboard. Hiring has never been more streamlined and simple. To learn more, visit Indeed.com slash credit. You're listening to ESPN Radio. Back after this. ESPN Radio. Do you want to sing it or you want me to, Canty? No, you got it. You got it, Shay. Basta, what it is right now. But we're adding uh, a little ER to that Busta because we have a special guest coming up. This is ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Series XM Channel 80. He's Chris Candy. I'm Shay Cornette. Thanks for hanging out with us. We're presented by Progressive Insurance. You can save big when you bundle your auto, home, motorcycle, RV, or boat. Just visit Progressive.com. So today, in case you didn't know, today was supposed to be the day That was the first official day of spring trading for all 30 teams in Major League Baseball. Instead, today is now the 77th day of the MLB lockout. 
So spring training might not happen, or maybe it's just delayed. I don't know. But for some clarity on the situation, let's welcome in Buster Only, ESPN MLB insider and host of Baseball Tonight podcast. Buster, hope you are well. Hope you liked your intro song, because maybe you could use that going forward. I don't know. Um, but but here we are, as I mentioned, supposed to be the first official day of spring training for every team. And instead, we're talking about the lockout. And so... Uh, March 31st is supposed to be opening day. Will we have baseball by then? Uh, I don't think we will. Um, now, look, all it takes is, you know, one really good day of progress. You know, last Saturday, uh, the owners forwarded a proposal to the players. They had barely moved from where they'd been before. All it takes is one of the two sides uh, stepping toward the middle. But I can't tell you at this moment – um, you know, what mechanism that would make that happen or what, uh, you know, person would make that happen. I, I talked to a player today who told me that he was actually planning on uh, working out, um, you know, at home at least for the next three weeks because he's not seeing an end in sight to this. I talked to someone on management side today who said that if there's not progress uh, to a point of an agreement by March 1st, he believes this is going to go on for months and months, and it's going to drag on for a, uh, a, to a point where um, you know, it's going to be an open question about uh, you know, how much the season we're going to have. Buster, the issues that Tony Clark and the MLPA are going to bat for, seems like it's the manipulation of service time and then trying to dictate when players would be arbitration eligible and wanting to increase the minimum salary. Is there going to be any movement that you see in the foreseeable future from the owner side when it comes to those specific issues? I don't – well, I think that they are trying to uh, – on the – on the issue of manipulating service time, I think that the owners are willing to talk about um, some change there where you, you essentially put in an NBA-style uh, draft lottery system to discourage tanking. Because tanking, you know, over the last 10 years has been a real problem in baseball. Um, I, I think the focus right now between the two sides is how, you know, where we go with a competitive balance tax. You know, mm-hmm. the, the, the threshold at which you know, that discourages teams from spending big dollars. Because what we've seen from the even the biggest spending teams, the Yankees, the Red Sox, the, the Dodgers, they've sort of boomeranged up and down, you know, over and under that tax. And it has had an effect. It's viewed by a lot of executives in baseball as a de facto salary cap. Um, the, the players obviously want that number higher. The owners want that number lower. I think right now that probably is at the center of what they're they're haggling over. Talking to Buster only right now, ESPN MLB insider, host of Baseball Tonight podcast. You can also follow him on Twitter at Buster underscore ESPN. Um, and, and discussing, obviously, this work stoppage with owners, players, everyone. Uh, what exactly has everyone been doing during this work stoppage? If we're not having conversations and we're not quite moving forward just yet and we're not communicating properly, what steps have we taken to trying to get this problem resolved? Well, I can tell you this. I mean, players are preparing uh, just in case they, um, you know, have to be in camp by the end of this month. You know, they're going through workouts. Uh, They're doing what they usually do, you know, up until this time of year because they – First off, you know, this generation of players, I think more than any other generation we've seen, they keep themselves in shape essentially year-round. And so they want to be ready to go if this thing goes forward. 
but there's not <laughs> there's not a lot of talking going on. It's something that really distinguishes this uh, you know the last six or seven years for me. You know, I haven't covered baseball from, since 1989. Is that um, the, the two sides now? They don't really talk that much. You know, there have only been a handful of, of actual negotiations since the December 2nd lockout began. Um, even those, you know, it's over Zoom, uh, which means the one, guy, one side can just essentially hang up the phone and end it very quickly. You know, we had, uh, I think, the, the last meeting before the December 7th lockout was seven minutes. They had uh, one last week. It was a little bit over an hour. There's just not a lot of discussion going on. You know, in the past uh, labor agreements, you, you might have contentious discussions, and then, um, you know, during the, the time between meetings in between, you might have a couple people on either side who, you know, go and grab a coffee and, and uh, you know, start talking about how they can work through things. It's a very different relationship between the two sides that I've, I've ever seen. Buster, we're coming off of consecutive pandemic-impacted seasons. How does the economic fallout affect the negotiations between the players and the owners in trying to come up with the new CBA? Yeah, I, I don't think it's having much effect at all. Um, mm. You know, I think from the players' perspective, look, uh, you know, they had uh, their 2016 labor agreement, I think, is, is the context for what's going on now. They did a terrible job of negotiating that deal. They gave a gave up a ton of financial landscape to the owners, um, and so I think from the players' perspective, you're trying to win back some ground. Uh, and you know, I think if there is a deal, that you probably will see that they will gain back some of that ground, but they want more. Um, and I think on the owners' side, they uh, you know they really the, the lead negotiators in my mind are you know still working through what we've seen is very this incrementalism this search for value that we see all baseball teams do these days. I mean, they are absolutely clawing. I, you know, 25 years ago, the general perception among the, between the two sides was that the union had the better lawyers. And I think that's flipped. And what that also does, though, I think it, uh, you know, is set up this dynamic where you have the players just simply do not trust the owners. I think that the owners... Uh, gained so much financial ground in the last negotiation that it really behooves them to step forward and make the deal that takes these uh, two sides to the middle. And you do wonder if either side is worried as they as is as worried as they should be about how much the sport of baseball is losing um, at a time when it's really fragile. I think in the you know, in terms of where it stands in the minds of uh, the newest generation of fans. Buster, really quickly, I-, I know we saw a flurry of activity in free agency before the lockout happened. What What is it going to look like once we get on the other side of this CBA negotiation as far as player acquisition goes with some of the guys that are still floating out there? Chris, it's going to be nuts because you're talking about a 200 unsigned free agents. You're talking about a team like the Oakland Athletics. They're going to be making a ton of deals. They're going to be big names like Freddie Freeman's finding new homes, Carlos Correa, Trevor Story, Matt Olson being traded, Matt Chapman being traded, and that's going to happen within about three weeks. So you're going to see a three-week period where you're seeing 15 to 20 names uh, in the acquisitions the teams make. Interesting. Really quick before we let you go, Buster, when I talked to you, right when this work stoppage started, you said we might come uh, see St. Patrick's Day go by, Flag Day go by, maybe we have a yeah. deal done by July 4th. Do you still have that stance, or do you think maybe Flag Day, June 14th, we might have something in place where we could see some baseball? 
Yeah, that was that was something that an agent uh, told me. He told his players, I think that that agent is turning out to again uh, be perhaps being proven uh, as accurate as he was back in 2016, because it really does not look good at this moment. Interesting stuff. All right, Buster, thanks for the time. We really appreciate it. Okay, guys, thanks for having me. See you later. That's Buster Olney, ESPN, MLB Insider, and host of Baseball Tonight podcast. Follow him on Twitter at Buster underscore ESPN. Okay, so let's move away from baseball because that's a disaster. Communicate. You know, they say sports mirrors life, Canty, and like <laughs> this is a prime example of that. Oh, he's like, in my 30 years covering baseball, I've never seen two sides not speaking to one another the way these two are. This is like the world. Like, we just Isn't can't it like come a marriage, together. Shay? Isn't it like a marriage when the two sides just shut down and stop talking to one yeah. another and they actually need a therapist or a counselor to step mm-hmm. in and be the arbiter on how to get their relationship back on course? It feels like that's the relationship between the owners and the MLBPA. Yeah, they need a mediator, and they need one fast, that's for sure. <laughs> um, all right, let's go back to the NBA, because with all the attention now on the Nets and the 76ers, are we overlooking the Bucks? We've barely talked about those reigning champs, but we're going to do it next right here, listening to Shea Cornette and Chris Canty on ESPN Radio. ESPN Radio. ESPN Radio, ESPN app, Sirius XM Channel 80. Shay Cornette, Chris Canty here, hanging out with you, giving you the latest on what is going on. We've talked NFL. We've talked Major League Baseball. But what about the NBA? Because you know what? We talked so much the last few days, Canty, about Harden and Ben Simmons and that trade and what it's going to look like after the deadline and on and on and on. But you know who we haven't talked much about at all? Not in the last 24 hours, 48 hours. Really, this season would be – the Bucks, the Milwaukee Bucks, the reigning champs, Giannis Antetokounmpo. And you know what he did last night? Oh, no big deal. He just dropped 50. <laughs> it's just like <laughs> he's going out there doing things night after night. And yet still, we want to focus all our attention on the eighth best team in the East. Why? Well, here's the thing. Because the eighth best team in the East has a lot of star power in the way of Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant. And then they just added to the mix with Ben Simmons. So that's what makes them interesting. But, Shay, I'm with you. I mean, I guess the Milwaukee Bucks, because we expect them to be there when it comes time to compete for the conference championship or to get to the NBA Finals, we know that this team is going to be there. They're the reigning defending champs until somebody beats them. But the part that's scary about the Milwaukee Bucks is the evolution of Giannis's game. And that's just something that we didn't see coming. Shay, last night he dropped 50 points on 21 shots. I think it's the fourth best in terms of number of shots, fourth fewest number of shots for a 50-point performance that we've ever seen in the NBA. And he shot 80% from the field. He was 17 for 21 from the field, Shay, and he was two for three from three-point land, 14 to 18 from the free throw line. And, and by the way, he, his ankle was kind of sore too, just so you know. Just he a little bit. Just a little, a little. just a little bit. Yeah. Up. He wasn't 100%, but let me tell right. you what was. That mid-range jumper that he somehow overnight developed too. Because when you got Giannis pulling up and then falling away from about 16 to 18 feet, he's virtually indefensible. And that opens things up for everybody else that's involved. So Drew Holiday can get his buckets. Chris Middleton can get his buckets. We know that they're dealing with the injury to Brooke Lopez. But you got insurance in adding Serge Ibaka at the trade deadline. I thought that was a savvy move by them. But they have all the makings of a team that's capable of being able to run it back. And so I get it. Last night, you're playing against a Pacers team that punted on the season. But in terms of the elements of Giannis's game that has evolved, like I, I don't know how you stop this guy. Giannis 
is the best player in the NBA, and I don't know how close it is when it comes to the other guys that are in that conversation. Look, from the start of the season, who were the odds-on favor to win the chip? It was not, out of the East. It was not the Milwaukee Bucks. Instead, it was the Brooklyn Nets. They have been underrated since the minute they held up that trophy. And you know what's a mark of a really good team? I don't care what sport it is. It's normally how they respond to bad losses. If you want to take a look at the Milwaukee Bucks schedule and how they've responded to bad losses, in terms of losing back-to-back games, they've lost a few two in a row here or there. You want to go beyond two, maybe where they've lost three in a row, you have to go all the way back to October And if I'm looking at this schedule right, it's only happened one time this entire season. Mm. They know how to bounce back and figure things out. And why is that? Because they have Giannis Antetokounmpo, who's not only funny and hilarious and so endearing in his post-game press conferences, but he also does it all on the floor. As you alluded to it, he can shoot, he can post up, he can defend, and he can lead. And this Milwaukee Bucks team continues to get disrespected because it doesn't have that same flair and star power like the New York teams. It doesn't have the drama that we're so accustomed to seeing in the NBA because they don't need it. What do they need that drama? The biggest drama that had to do with the with the Milwaukee Bucks last year was Giannis Antetokounmpo's Chick-fil-A order and if they were returning their head coach <laughs> and Coach Bud. And all those things were put to rest when he ordered a 50-piece nugget at, at Chick-fil-A. Like it, it, That's the only drama they come with so we don't sit here and talk about them until it matters most, which we're creeping closer and closer now. We're almost to the midway point in the season in the All-Star game. And then hopefully we're going to start talking about these bucks because they are so good and they have and they're such a good team to root for too well apparently he ordered a 50-piece nugget last night when they played the Pacers so that, that that's another that's, right. that's another instance that's where Giannis right. is is ordering on a drive-through didn't play on the first night of the back-to-back but stepped up last night as you mentioned he was dealing with the ankle but the fact that he's able to go out there and have this type of performance that's going to put everybody in the NBA on notice that this team is going to make some noise once we get to the postseason and you said something Shay that really caught my attention because as being somebody that's been on a championship team, when you don't have to worry about all of that noise surrounding your team, you know, what your star players are doing, who's committed, who's in, who's out, whether or not your coach is going to be around, having all of that stuff, all of that noise kind of settle down and just going about your business very workmanlike is what bodes well for you being able to be in the position that you want to be in at the end of the season and setting your team up to have a championship run. The fact that Coach Bud is going to be around, the fact that Giannis is there, you got Drew Holiday and Chris Middleton, you've got the makings of your big three that are pretty much there. And in the supporting cast, there really isn't a whole lot of variance from last year to this year. You lost some pieces in P.J. Tucker, but you gained a guy in Serge Ibaka. I just feel like this team is going to be poised to make another run at it. And all the other teams in the Eastern Conference that they're going to have to go through have a lot of noise around them, and if they don't have noise, they don't have the top-end talent that this Bucks team does. Hey, amen. You said it. All right, coming up, we go back to the NFL. Why was Dallas Cowboys executive Richard De- uh, Delrymple not fired after the investigation into allegations made by the cheerleaders? We'll dissect it a little bit more next. You're listening to Canteen Cornette.